Well, for our time in the Word of God this morning, I, I want to bring you to the biblical teaching, just to take a, a, a week out here of James since it is Mother's Day, and I wanted to take you to the biblical teaching of what it means to be a, a godly woman. I, I think we often hear the words when this phrase, maybe that woman is a godly woman. But I ask myself, and maybe you do at times, and even as you read from the Word of God, what is a godly woman? What does that godly woman look like? And I thought it would be appropriate on Mother's Day to, to remind us of the character of, of a godly woman. And I don't think this is just for mothers this morning, although it certainly is. It's for married women without children. I would also say that this truth can be addressed to singles if you're not married. I would also say it could be addressed to to single men as well, to young women, as we look at the character and the reflection of the heart of a godly woman. And to do that, I want you to take your Bible this morning and look over to the book of Titus. Turn there to the book of Titus. Paul is the author of Titus, and we call this one of his epistles here. And he wrote to Titus with a very specific purpose in mind. You don't have to go far in reading Titus chapter 1 to see what the purpose of this book is. It's stated there in verse 5. Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order. So, stop there just for a second. He left him there, this little island, did Paul. He left his young son in the faith, his mentor, Titus, He left them at this church, and he left them for this purpose, to put what remained in order, to put it in in, in, in a logical place where it can function. In fact, that, that word there for order speaks of just something that's fragmented that needs to be put together. And so he left them to put together what was remaining in this church. It often carries the word to put together what was broken or what was needing repair. And so he left them there to, to fix some things. And you'll note, look at one five. the first thing that he told them to do, here is what any church plant should be about, is to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So he left them there to put it in order, and the first order of business was to appoint, you can see it there, elders. Not appoint an elder, but point elders, it's plural, it's always plural in the scripture. It is always to the church to be run by a group of leaders. We call those leaders elders, and we have seven here at Grace Church of the Valley. But he, he told them to put these orders and elders, excuse me, in every town as I directed you. And then you'll note here in 1, 6 through 10, here at 6 through 9, he said then what an elder needs to be like and what his character needs to be like. Look at verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And he goes on to list the qualifications of an elder. He then gave the reason why for the elders. Look at verse 10. Here's why. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And in verse 11, it says they must be what? Silenced, which is interesting that Paul told Titus to appoint elders and elders who are qualified and elders have as a role to silence false teachers. It's as though it seems like we've cut that out of our Bible. We've become so accepting of every teaching that 
comes along the way that we actually give people wide open door and privilege to the people of God. Here they were to be silenced. Why? Look at verse 11 again. They were upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And so they were disrupting entire families for the purpose of gain. And so he says all of this. Look down at verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. In other words, there's a profession, but their lifestyles in such shambles that they're denying him by their works or their lack of it. They are, verse 16, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And then this in 2.1. But as for you, and it's kind of emphatic there, but as for you, Titus, he says, teach what accords in two one with sound doctrine, with healthy doctrine, with pure teaching. And he's making a distinction, is he not there, between the false teachers in 10 through 16. But as for you, Titus, in two one, you teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then you'll know, and you know this probably, he then begins to go through various relationships in the church. Look at 2.2. He speaks there to older men. In 2.3, he says, older women likewise. Look at verse 4. And so train the young women. He gives a word to the older men. He gives a, a, a a word to the older women. He then gives a word to the young women. Look at verse 6. It's kind of unique. He says in 2.6, Likewise, urge the younger men. And what I find interesting is the older men got a list of qualities. The older women have a list of qualities. The younger women have a list of qualities that they're to live out. But to you young men, he says just one thing. You need to be self-controlled. In other words, that will cover it all in the life of a young man. And then you'll note that he said he gives a word actually to Titus himself in 2.7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. He addresses, look at chapter 2, verse 9, slaves or servants, employees, are to be submissive to their own masters. And so he gives various instructions for people in the life of the church. Now, he does this. For this reason, look at 2.5, where he says, and he's actually telling what a younger woman needs to be, self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Here's the reason, 2.5, that the word of God may not be reviled. That the word of God may not be dishonored is the thought. In other words, these truths need to be lived out so that in no way would we ever dishonor the Word of God. Now, my focus particularly this morning, if I can say it, though all need to listen, is a very direct address in the life of Grace Church of the Valley to our older women on this Mother's Day. You'll you'll note there that it says in 2.3, look back there, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And in verse 4, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Verse 5, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home. And again, it goes on to say there in verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so my focus is directed towards the older women. Now, I've heard often throughout my ministry from younger women that tell me we need help, but there doesn't seem to be enough older women to help us. It's true. Many have said that to me. It may be that older women were never taught a biblical perspective as to their God-given responsibility, and so they genuinely don't know what it is. And I don't want you to be without knowledge This morning, uh, older women will teach what that means. It could be that some women uh, simply may not want to be considered in the older woman category, maybe, right? Um, Maybe even some in that group wrongly believe that once their children are grown and, and gone, 
that they have done their part and they have no further responsibility. Others may, older women, put all their time, all their energy into their own children and into their own grandchildren and no one else. But here, nevertheless, Paul gives instruction to an older woman. Now, just as we begin here in 2.3, it speaks of an older woman. You might ask the question, how old is that older woman or older women? How old are they? Well, obviously, it's a word in the biblical language. And the word there for older women just simply means an aged woman is what it means. Now, the Scripture does not specify how old that woman is, that would be actually like trying to say how old should an elder be. Well, there's no technical number given to what that older woman is to be, or for that matter, an elder. Sometimes you might hear that an older woman must be 60. I've heard that. And I think some people identify that age at 60 because of Paul's identification of a widow. When Paul was addressing the life of a widow in 1 Timothy 5, 9, it said there that a widow was to be put on the list only if she was not less than 60 years of age. And so as he describes a widow, some people carry that over to the age of an older woman. But this should not be taken, that instruction for a widow, as a biblical imperative that can transfer to an older woman. What Paul called an older woman would likely be called a mature woman, or in my understanding, a middle-aged woman, okay? So he's speaking to those women. He's speaking to you specifically. In fact, just as Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit of God to Titus, to the flock at Crete, the Spirit of God as fresh as when he gave it, is speaking to these older women at Grace Church of the Valley. Now, after a brief description of the character of an older woman, look what Paul states an older woman is to do. Look at 2.3. It says, after this description of her character, at the end of 2.3, they are to teach what is good. They're to teach. Now, the, the word for teaching there is not a formal presentation of the truth. That's not what that word teach. There's other words to describe a formal. That's not this word. This word is describing more of a modeling, more of an example. So an older woman is to teach by model, by example, what is good. The heart of the Scripture here is that as Paul tells Titus to tell the older woman, they are to teach what is good. And he's getting at that these women, not by a program, which is interesting, not by a book, but by a lifestyle is the thought, by an example, are to teach the younger women. Mounts and his commentary said of an older woman. He said it pictures the older women, plural, those who are experienced in life, marriage, and child rearing, taking the younger women in the congregation under their care and helping them adjust to their responsibilities, end of quote. And so here, this teaching that is good is by example explained in the very next phrase. What do they do? Well, they teach what is good. Well, what is that? Look at the scripture, verse 4 now. Here's what they teach. And so train the young women, he says, to love their husbands and their children. He says an older woman is to model, mentor, disciple. And here's the word. He, they are to train the young woman, and bound up in that thought there in 2.4, for the word for train, it is the word train for self-control, okay? That's what the word means in the Greek. It's speaking of self-control. In other words, Paul is telling Titus to 
tell the older women that they are to teach what is good and train the younger women to be sober-minded, to be self-controlled is the thoughts. Now, you'll note there, look again down at verse 4, and so train the young women. The word for young is just simply the Greek word neos, and it just means new, which it has the connotation of a newly married woman or young woman. And so again, you have this older woman woman training the younger women towards self-control, towards discernment by experienced older women in the flock. Now you might ask the question, what does that training consist of? And I'm glad you asked that question, okay? What follows then are seven beautiful characteristics that an older woman is to train a younger woman in. And so I've titled this message, The Mission and the Mandate of Spiritual Mothering, because that's what it is. It is a mission. It is a mandate. And it carries the ideal of spiritual mothering to this flock. And so as we worship God this morning, let me bring you back to the sacred character of a woman that is put before us. First, maritally, maritally, look in 2-4, an older woman is to train the young women to, just uses this phrase, love their husbands, okay? Love their husbands. That's what she's to train a younger woman to do. Now, maybe you've heard me say this before, but there's different Greek words that are used in the New Testament to describe what love means. But you have to say, well, what is he talking about here? Well, he says the older women are to train the young women to love their husbands. And then also the phrase is there to love their children. And there's different Greek words that are given an expression in the New Testament. One that you'd be certainly familiar with is agape love. That is a love that's described in the New Testament of a self-sacrificing type of love. For example, you're well aware of John 3.16, for God so, what? Love the world. God so agape the world. And then in the very definition of that, he gave his only begotten son. That's agape love. Agape love is the love of self-sacrifice. It's the love of Jesus Christ for a lost world. Interestingly, men, maybe we'll get there on Mother's Day, when it says for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, he's also using that word in Ephesians 5.25 that describes agape love. Husbands, agape love your wife just as Christ agape love the church. In other words, just as Christ laid down his life for the church, a man in his own home in relationship to his wife is to love her in the same way to die for her, is the thought. That's one word. But there's another word in the Greek language, and certainly you're familiar with some aspects of it, is the word phileo. Phileo, it's just a different way to describe love. There's four of them, okay? But phileo love is the love of friendship, the love of, uh, we could say, affection. It is the love of brotherly love. And so that is why Philadelphia, Philadelphia, is called the city of what? Brotherly love and, and so forth. And so you have different words that mean different things. Phileo love is the love of affection, the love of delight, the, the, the love of friendship. And so you're asking yourself as you come to Titus, older women, train the younger women in self-control. Specifically, I want you to train them to love their husbands. And Paul here uses which word? He uses the word phileo, phileo, okay? I want you, he says to the older women specifically. In other words, it, it, this captures the heart of a younger woman, but the import of the text is an older woman is to train the younger woman to love her husband, to be literally a husband lover, 
to be fond of your husband. In other words, he's saying, older women, you teach the younger women to like your husband and to be a friend of your husband. Now you say, well, pastor, why would he, why would he say that? Well, two reasons. One, it's just biblical. So whatever he says, it is the word of God. But it's also interesting in, in this culture, the Greek culture, women were often treated, one writer said, and bred like animals. Okay, Uh, think about this just for a second. Judaism had a slogan and the slogan was recited by men. And the slogan went like this, quote, thank God for not making me a woman. End of quote. That is that statement, a slogan that went that way. And women in this time came to Christ And there was a newfound freedom in Christ at salvation. And make no mistake about it, beloved, Christianity, far from denigrating a woman, liberated women from the pathetic and barbaric scene that existed in the culture. And it's very possible, okay, that some of these women who had come to Christ had become resentful and had become bitter and had become cold and had become frustrated and had become angry and they became unforgiving. And then all of a sudden, they're equal in Christ, in position, if you will. You know, there's neither free nor free man, slave nor free man. Men or women were all equal in Christ. And then one of these women who came to Christ might have been married even to an unsaved man. And all of a sudden, it began to well up in them. And so Paul, by the authority of the Word of God and by the Spirit, is commanding you. That's that's really what I want to say. Older women, you need to mentor and model and love these younger women to be husband lovers is the thought. In other words, he's saying to the older women, I'm not asking for sacrifice only. I'm not asking you just to live with your circumstances. I'm not telling you or asking you to put up with your old man. No, here's the teaching of the word of God, older women to younger women. I want you to like your husband. I want you to be a friend to your husband. I want you to be fond of your husband. I want you to be a helper to your husband. I don't want you just to tolerate him. I want you to delight in him. I want you to love him. And so it begs the question, do you like being with your husband? Wives, let me just ask you, and maybe older women and younger women, when you stood before family and friends on your wedding day and You recited vows that maybe went something like this. I, your name, take thee to be my loving husband. I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be thy loving and faithful wife. In plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. You said something like that. And you were not only pledging your fidelity, You were pledging your friendship. And you were not just pledging your faithfulness. You were pledging your affection. Okay? You were not just making a sacrifice. You were sharing your lives together. But what happens? Pressures set in. Sin sets in. Bitterness may set in. Children come, trials develop, and they begin to weave its way into life's demands and they can rob the friendship. They could rob the affection that a woman is to have for her husband. So Paul says here, I want older women to teach the younger women to phileo love their husbands. And again, this love is a sacrificial giving away of yourself, your interest, your needs to love your husband and delight in him. 
MacArthur, in his commentary, I thought worth noting, said that Paul is not referring to, or excuse me, Paul is referring to a willing, determined love that is not based on the husband's worthiness, but on God's command given to a godly woman. End of quote. Well said. Well said. Listen, it is the role, I want to be super clear here, okay, of an older woman to train the younger women. It is not my role. It is not the elder's role. It is the role of an older, godly, mature woman to train the younger women, to mentor them, to disciple them. And I don't say that to get myself off the hook or the elder board. I'm just trying to be honest with you. When I look at it, our church, I just think half of our body is women. And I'm so glad that there's biblical instruction here. And the instruction is not necessarily me. It's not really given to the elder board, though I'm to teach you. It's given here to the older women. And let me say it this way. God has placed the role of mentoring, training, discipling upon the mature older women in the flock. That is a high, high privilege and responsibility. Listen, older women, you have been given a serious and sobering responsibility in the body of Christ. And he is, Paul, telling the mature older women that you have a right to speak. You've lived with your husband. You've raised your kids. And you must, older women, share your successes, your failures, your joys, and your sorrows, what the Spirit has taught you, and your life is the basis for your teaching. So here's what he tells older women. Maritally, you are to train the younger women to love their husband. But there's a second principle here. Look there in verse 2. Okay, There's so much we can say, but we shall move on. Maritally, to love their husband maternally. Look at 2.4. And so train the young women to love their husbands and what? Children. Maternally. And it's linked to that word love, to love their children. Now, once again, words are descriptive, are they not? Is it agape love? Or is it phileo love? What do you think? It's phileo love. Okay? It's fascinating. It's kind of counterintuitive. You say, well, you say, well, why, Scott? Because you would just tend to think that he would say, older women, train the younger women to agape their children. That's not what he says, though. I'm, that's, this is the word of God. The, the word of God is phileo. Older women... Train the younger women to love their children. In other words, train them to like their children. Train them to delight in their children. Now, you might think most mothers love their children. Why would he even say this? Well, again, back to the culture. I'm quoting Barclay here. He had an insightful analysis on the day in which Paul wrote, and he said that attitudes made life perilous for children in those days. He said one of these attitudes was a Roman law called patria potestas, which meant the father's power, okay? And that law allowed the father to have absolute power over every member of his family. That father could sell them as slaves. No joke. If you didn't like one of your children, hey, Johnny, you're gone, you know. I sold you, you know. But he could really sell them as slaves. He could make them work in the fields in chains. 
Like, just send them out. You know, I want you to go look over these nectarines or peaches. But by the way, I don't want you to cover with a suit. You know, don't worry about the sprays. In fact, just put it right to your mouth. I mean, he could put them out there in chains. In fact, Barclay went on to say he could take the law into his own hands and punish any member of his own family as severely as he wanted, even to the point of inflicting the death penalty. And he had this power as long as he lived. And what would happen is, is when a child was born, maybe you've heard of this in history, that child was taken and placed between the feet of the father. And if the father reached down and picked up the child, the child stayed in the home. If the father walked away, the child was thrown away. I mean, it was a perilous day. And they didn't treat the women right. And the children weren't treated right. And Paul, by the Spirit of God, commands you women to train the younger women to love your husband. And then he trains them to love their children. Let me elaborate just a little bit. Found a letter. Not not one of my love letters to my wife, but it was a letter dated 1 B.C., And it was from a man, the man's name was Hilarion, and he was writing to his wife, Elise, and I think it gives you some insight into how children were viewed. Here's what the letter said, quote, heartiest greetings, Elise. If good luck to you, you have another child. If it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, throw it out. And this is the day in which Paul wrote, Seneca said this, quote, We slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge a knife, he said, into a sick cow, and children who are born weakly and deformed, we drown. It was a harsh world. Last night, my wife and I, we're at that elegant store called the Fashion Fair, you know, down at Fresno. And I was in this store. We had to take something back. And I was just sitting in a chair waiting for my wife, okay? Maybe that sounds familiar to some of you. I was just, you know, she doesn't, she's not, I'm not waiting. I'm just, I, I'm just, I don't, I can't even shop for myself, you know? So I'm sitting in a chair And this young girl rolls this boy up to to the next chair next to me, right by the dressing room. And I thought, this is the most unique boy I had ever seen in my life. So the first thing I wanted to do is not over-respond. She reeled up a, a, just, you know, a carriage, and I'm just sitting right there. And she sits right next to me. And this boy is a baby, but he's not a baby. Because when I looked at him, he had just a, li- he had a face of a young child. But his body was the body of a baby. Never seen anything like it in my life. No, he's about this big. And he's eight years old. You've never seen anything like your, and I asked his sister, and then his mom came up, and we had a delightful talk. We found out that he has a rare condition of um, dwarfism. I forgot the exact term of it. And in this condition, there's only 200 like it in the whole world. And I'd never seen... He, it's a boy, but he's eight, but he's in a baby's body. And I got to tell you, we just sat there and talked with them, and they're from Palestine. Found out that his... Name was the meaning of John the Baptist. And so we begin to talk, and my wife shared a little bit with her about the gospel of John. They're obviously Islamic and um, Muslims. And, um, but but I, I, I walked away from that boy, and I thought he was really a delightful boy. Listen, that boy would have never made it in this time. And in most cases... He wouldn't have made it with most families. And there he was. I let him see my cell phone and really smart little kid and uh, laughing and giggling. But you've never seen anything like it in your life. And I, as I begin to think on this passage, I begin to think, hey, listen, 
these children, as I mentioned in just that illustration before, were often thrown out by parents. And they were left in what they called the form. And people would come by at night and they would collect the boys and make them their slaves. And they would collect the girls and they would raise them as prostitutes. And so Paul was speaking, was he not, to a culture where children were severely abused. And you say, is it any different today? And I would say, yes, it's worse, is what I would say. We have abortion on demand. 150,000 abortions a day. Okay? And if, you, if you've looked at all, you don't want to. Maybe you've seen Emily Letts this week, who showed her video of the experience of her abortion, and she called it Happy Abortion, abortion Day. To let women know that if they choose such a decision, they can be happy of it. In fact, she went on to say on YouTube that she's proud of it. And she said, quote, I feel in awe that I can make a baby. Interesting worldview that she's the creator of life. And if that's your worldview, then she's the taker of life. Listen, when Paul says to women to love their children, just ask yourself in our society, do we love them? Because here's the stuff I'm reading out of Newsweek magazine, okay, Christine Ranhosky, who's a manager at a Wall Street firm. Ranhosky is in her 30s. I'm just reading this out of Newsweek. That she, she's in her 30s, that she and her husband, Alan, a doctor, will probably never have children. She said, quote, you reach an economic point where you don't need to use a calculator in the supermarket, she said, now the decision, she said, uh, she said, now the decision would be financial as well as emotional, and the bottom line just doesn't add up to children. Ranhosky said, quote, having children isn't necessarily going to buy me more contentment, end of quote. See, so if, if, if it's all about you and having a child, then she's going to choose not to have one. Janet Young 38, a molecular biologist, and her husband, Harold Goldstein, a professor of civil engineering, said about children, quote, this is a prime time in our lives, says Goldstein. If we had a kid, we couldn't be as active. He said, I guess I'm selfish. I like to do things for myself. And then he went on to say, I'm not ready to sacrifice my time to a kid, end of quote. And so faced with options, some just opt out of motherhood altogether. And beloved, I just say to us, by way of encouragement, here is a charge, okay, to a young woman to think of her children with affection, that they are not to be viewed as a duty. They are a delight. They are not an obligation they are a wonderful privilege. You might ask the question, is it natural? Isn't this just natural for a woman to love her children? I mean, I certainly, I believe in most cases, there's a natural agape love that would sacrifice for your child. But often a woman becomes exhausted. She has long days. She has sleepless nights. She grows weary. She sees disobedience in the children. It can become exasperating. It can become frustrating. And it's easy, is it not, moms, to lose your patience, operate in the flesh, and lose that phileo love of affection and friendship. See, in other words, he's saying, older women, you help the young women just to enjoy your kids, to delight in your kids, to love your kids. Men, have you ever come home and asked your wife, so what did you do today? 
listen to the answer to that question to one mother who is just like many of you. So what did you do today? Her husband asked her. She stands up, and while she stands up, she's brandishing a fork, so be careful, okay? What did I do today, she asked, walking towards him, still holding the fork. She hands him a piece of paper entitled, What I Did Today, and she wrote it all down. Do you want to hear it? I think I can get through it pretty quick. 3.21 a.m., woke up, took Jeffrey to the bathroom. 3.31 a.m., Woke up, took Jeffrey to bed. 3.46, got you to quit snoring. 3.49, went to sleep. 5.11 a.m., woke up, took Jeffrey to the bathroom. 6.50, alarm went off. 7.10, the alarm went off. 7.19, got up, warned Stephen, prayed with Stephen. 7.21, made bed. Warned Stephen. 725, spanked Stephen. Prayed with Stephen. 737, fed boys a breakfast of Cheerios, OJ, and toast. Scolded Jeffrey for mixing them all together. (laughs) 746, woke Rachel. 748, had devotions. 750, made Stephen's lunch. Tried to answer Jeffrey's question, why does God need people? 801, woke Rachel. 802, started laundry. 803, took rocks out of the washing machine. Okay? 804, started laundry. Planned grocery list. Tried to answer Jeffrey's question, do we need God? 829, woke Rachel. That was the third one. 830, helped Stephen with homework. Told him to remember his lunch. 831, sent Stephen to school. 832, had breakfast with Rachel, pulled toast out of the VCR, okay? Warned Jeffrey, rest of morning, here was her description. Teacher phoned, wondering why Stephen had no socks. Took them to him, returned library books, explained why the cover was missing. Mailed letters, bought groceries, planned birthday party, cleaned house, wiped noses, wiped windows, wiped bottoms. Teacher called, wondering why Stephen had no lunch, Took it to him, pulled spaghetti out of carpet, cut bite marks off the cheese. 12.35, put wet clothes in the dryer. 12.36, sat down to rest. 12.39, scolded Jeffrey, helped him put clothes back in the dryer. 12.45, agreed to babysit for a friend, cut Tresep out of Rachel's hair. And here's what she did in the afternoon. Regretted babysitting decision. (laughs) Killed insects. Read to kids. Clipped ten fingernails, sent kids outside, unpacked groceries, watered plants, swept floor, picked watermelon seeds off the linoleum, explained to Jeffrey why he shouldn't singe ants with a magnifying glass, read to kids, late afternoon, here's what she said, put band-aids on knees, organized task force to clean house, accepted appointment to local committee. The secretary said, we thought you would have extra time since you don't work, okay? Tried to answer Rachel's question. Why are boys different than girls? Listened to a zillion questions. Clean dishwasher. Briefly considered supper. Briefly considered heading for the hills. (laughs) 5.21 p.m. Husband comes home looking for food and romance. And the husband, okay, had finished reading now. But she's still standing over him with a fork. And she said, of course, not all my days go this smoothly, she says. Any questions? I mean, you think about that. We laugh because it's true. But is it any wonder why Paul reminds mothers to love their children, to phileo your children? Listen, I mean, on a more serious note, maybe you have a child with special needs. Maybe you feel like you have no time for yourself. Fatigue sets in, sickness sets in, disappointment sets in. And listen, if a mother is not filled with the Spirit, it would be so easy to lose the friendship a mother is to have towards her child. I think Paul's just spot on. And what I'm saying, don't miss the big picture. Older women, I am charging you today 
from the authority of the Word of God to train in self-control a younger woman to help her enjoy her kids. Martha Peace, in becoming a Titus woman, said a mother that neglects this command in her heart makes cruel fun of her child, calls him names, twists the truth, overreacts with physical discipline, speaks in a harsh tone, tries to control her children with anger. And she said, when exasperated, the mother lets unwholesome words out of her mouth. Words like this, you make me so mad. Or for a mother to tell a child, you are so selfish. Or for a mother to say, I'm so tired, leave me alone. Or for a mother to say, I should have known better than to expect you to make your bed correctly. You are so slow. Or even this one, you are so stupid. See, an older woman has a task to remind a younger woman that days aren't always as long and hard and that she needs the Spirit's guidance and that you need to remind the young woman to like their children, to cherish them, to sit with them, to take interest in them, and to love them. You say, well, how can I love my children with a phileo love? Let me just give you three here quick insights and principles to encourage you today, okay? Number one, I just want to remind you of the investment of children, okay? The investment of it. Realize that your greatest investment in the kingdom of God, if you have children, is the discipleship of your children. And I believe the greatest calling in the entire world is to be a wife and to be a mother. It's hard work. It's long hours. But what a wonderful opportunity to make an investment in the kingdom of God by raising children in the ways of Christ. Now, don't misunderstand me. This would never, ever, ever, ever mean that a woman without children or a single woman can't make a significant contribution in God's kingdom. Certainly, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians seven twenty-five through 40 that it's a blessing to be single. I'm just simply declaring here from the Word of God the privilege that God has given to women in bearing children and raising those children. G. Campbell Morgan, who was a famous, famous preacher, had four sons that all became ministers. And at a family reunion, a friend asked one of the sons, who is the greatest preacher amongst you? And while the sons looked at the father, G. Campbell, G. Campbell Morgan replied, Mother. <laughs> Mother. She's the one who raised those sons. Listen, your greatest disciples, women, will be not necessarily in the church, but those in your own home. And according to God's word, what an incredible opportunity for making an investment in the kingdom of God. Amen? I, I just want to raise that up. I just want to raise that up. Talk to a, someone this week, not here, not even biased in this area, whose wife just keeps the children in the room, locks the door, leaves, goes different places. Really hard for him. I think for her, seems like those children are in the way of her desired lifestyle. But listen, here positively, proactively, if you're a young mom, listen, phileo those kids. Older women, you need to come alongside them. Secondly, not only investment, but privilege. Privilege. What, what a privilege you have been given from God that he would entrust to you children who are made in his image to be raised and loved by mothers with affection, with friendship, with interest. What a high privilege. There's a man by the name of Tony Campalo, and uh, he's a Bible teacher, a teacher, a motivational guy for larger groups. And he used to say to Tony Campalo when his wife was at home, 
and she was a full-time mother. And someone asked her, his wife, what is it that you do? Here's how his wife would respond. She said, quote, I am socializing two homo sapiens into the dominant values of the Judeo-Christian tradition in order that they might be instruments for the transformation of the social order into the kind of eschatological utopia that God willed from the beginning of the creation. And then his wife would ask the other person, and what is it that you do? (laughs) That's good, isn't it? It's an investment. It's a privilege. And thirdly, it's an encouragement. And this is a word to you fathers, a word to me, that you need to provide your wife with praise for the countless hours of work to raise your family. You need to give them words of praise, words of admonishment, not words of criticism. I mean, I would tell you that my fondest memories of my home as I stand up here and speak and I think just say this off the cuff, Nowhere in my notes is the laughter in my home of my wife with our children. That's my memory. Now, they're getting a little older, but it's just, oh, it, it, things might not have been perfect everywhere, but it was the laughter of our children in our home. And so here, you just have this wonderful call. Now, listen, I said there's seven characteristics. How many did I get to? I just got to two, so I'm not quite sure. Maybe we'll finish the next five next Mother's Day. Or you can tell me, no, Scott, go one more week on this, and maybe we can finish. But listen, I love this little poem just to encourage you moms. I took a piece of plastic clay and idly fashioned it one day. And as my fingers pressed it still... It moved and yielded at my will. I came again when days were past. The form I gave, it still bore. And my fingers pressed it more. I could change that form no more. I took a piece of living clay and gently formed it day by day and molded with my power and art a young child's soft and yielding heart. I came again when days were gone. It was a man that I looked upon. He still that early impress bore, and I could change it nevermore. Listen, you have a rare, rare opportunity. Phileo those kids. Love them tenderly. Instruct them, yes. Discipline them, yes. But may they know your affection.